preaching today's text today is Matthew, from Matthew 2. In the time of Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observe his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who is shepherd to my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay homage pay him homage. When they heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had, been, had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according the time according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. When Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. After being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth. So what, that what has been spoken through the process, prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is a uh, familiar story, uh, this uh, chapter 2 of Matthew, although it's a bit of a story in two parts. 
Now, it is one continuous story, but we usually hear it uh, the first half and then the second half, or actually, I think more often, we hear the first half and then we kind of act like the second half never happened. So the first half is uh, what we often uh, kind of get pulled into our nativity scenes, into our Christmas story. This is the wise men coming from the, from the east, or uh, according to the uh, traditional song, which we will actually sing later today at Offering, uh, we three kings, the three kings uh, from the east who have come. Uh, so this is the first half of the story. The second half of the story is then Herod's response to news of this king and Herod's response to being tricked by these magi, these wise men from the east, when they don't come back and report to him where this newborn king of the Jews happens to be. And Herod's response is to kill all of the two-year-old and under children in and around Bethlehem. Now, this sounds like a huge number, but this is a small village. This is maybe 30 children, something like that. Uh, uh, Far too many, but not uh, the sort of uh, large genocides that maybe we hear about in the news. Herod was uh, a violent king. Uh, He was known, he actually had uh, his own children killed uh, when they became threats to his power. Uh, His son, Archelaus, who we heard about at the end of that reading, was even uh, more violent, perhaps, than Herod. Uh, He put down an uprising uh, right at the beginning of his reign in the temple, uh, putting to death uh, several hundred uh, rebels, uh, those who had threatened his power. Uh, This was a violent time, and these were violent rulers that this happened in. But let me tell this in two parts, uh, this story in two parts. This sermon's going to be sort of in two parts, too, because these two, story, these two parts of the story are so uh, different from each other, and they really demand to be looked at uh, a little bit both the same. So first, I want to look at the first half, and I just want to dispel a few myths. So when we think of the wise men coming from the east or the three kings coming from the east, we think of our nativity scene, right? So you've got the stable, you've got the animals, you've got uh, Jesus and the manger with Mary and Joseph, and you've got shepherds who've been called by the angel, sheep, uh, bringing their sheep with them. You've got the camels that the three wise men or three kings came in, and they're always there, and they've got their three gifts, right? So one's got gold, one's got frankincense, one's got myrrh. You know, we actually have this on our banner here, those uh, three gifts right there. Uh, and uh, and you, you have an idea of what they look like. But if you pay attention to how Matthew actually describes this, it doesn't really line up that well with the image that we have in our nativity scenes. First off, when does this take place? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, they show up in Jerusalem. Sometime after. How long after? We're not told. But Herod, remember, he finds out exactly when the star appeared, and when he has his murderous decision later on, he sets the age limit at two. So Jesus could have been several months, a year, a little more even old at the time that the wise men uh, finally show up. Second, what does it mean that they are wise men or kings? Are they kings? Well, there's nothing in the text that says they're kings. Uh, I think the tradition was because their gifts were so expensive, they must have been kings, but it doesn't say that in the text. Uh, They are magi. Now, that word magi is a strange one. It sounds a lot like our word magic, you might notice, and that's because it actually is related to our word magic. You could actually translate this, and in Acts, the same word is translated magician. These are wise men of a sort, but wise maybe in a way that we aren't quite expecting them to be when they come from the East. Now, we don't know exactly where they come from, but my favorite uh, theory about where they come from is that they come from Persia. Uh, that they come from Persia because if you remember when the uh, Jews were exiled in Babylon, the Persian Empire took over Babylon and is actually the ones who, sent the, who, uh, who allowed them to come back to Israel. 
And there's several stories in the Old Testament of powerful Jews who are powerful in the Persian government. So Daniel is one who becomes powerful, uh, the, the chief uh, kind of uh, governor of, of the kingdom of Persia under uh, King Darius and his successors. Uh, Esther is the wife of uh, probably King Artaxerxes of uh, Persia. Uh, and she is powerful. Mordecai, of course, is, gets special recognition in that story. So the Jews have a presence in Persia, even long centuries after the exile. And so there's some connections here. That word magi is also a word that was used to describe the priests of the Persian religion, a stargazing religion, appropriately, called Zoroastrianism. So it's possible that these are religious priests from a foreign religion who have seen in their study and perhaps worship of the stars a sign that has led them to the Messiah in Jerusalem of all places. It's a strange detail that Matthew includes, that God apparently uses these, uh, the stars to communicate to these star worshipers that something interesting is happening in Jerusalem. The other thing is how many are there? Well, three, right? We all know there's three. But if you look in the text, what does it say? It doesn't say at all. It just says magi. How many are there? There could have been two. There could have been 200. We have no idea how many magi came from the east. There were three gifts named, so I think that's where the three comes from, but we just don't know. Uh, regardless, when they come up and they start asking about where the new king is, all of Jerusalem and Herod are terrified, uh, probably because they know how Herod's going to react to the threat of his power. So that's just some things to uh, throw off uh, your understanding of the Magi story uh, for you. Uh, but I also want you to notice that there's this theme right away in Matthew's gospel, and we've already noted it a little bit uh, when we talked about the genealogy of, Matthew, of Jesus rather, last week, that already Matthew has this concern that God is already reaching out to Gentiles, to uh, worshipers of other gods, in fact, uh, to Zoroastrians perhaps over in Persia, and uh, they are already coming to pay homage to this king, this Messiah, who is not their own, but is already reaching out uh, to the nations. We saw this in the genealogy, all of the Gentile uh, women included in uh, the genealogy of Jesus as well, but already that's here. Now, the second half of the story is, of course, the more troubling part of the story, and one of the reasons it's so troubling, I think, is it's so familiar. You have a king whose power is threatened. Uh, Herod the Great uh, was not Jewish by descent. Uh, he had constant accusations that he was not Jewish enough to be leading, uh, to be the ruler of Israel. And in fact, the fact that he was king came because uh, he had made some deals with the Romans, who were the occupying uh, foreign empire in Jerusalem. So Herod's uh, grasp on power was firm, but his claim to power wasn't seen as legitimate by very many of his people. And so he reacted by this by uh, harshly coming down on any threat to his power. And in fact, on embarking on these great building campaigns. So he greatly expanded uh, the temple at the time of Jesus. Much of uh, Jerusalem, as we think about it at the time of Jesus, is really due to Herod the Great's, that was his uh, title, Herod the Great, Herod the Great's building uh, projects. Uh, but he was a harsh ruler. And uh, when Herod finds out that there is another who might have a more legitimate claim to the throne than he does, he reacts, as he always has, with violence. By, uh, when, and when he cannot target the baby exactly with harsh violence, with overkill, very literally overkill. And what he does when he does this is he creates uh, the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, he makes them refugees. 
They have to leave by night. They're warned in a dream. They have to leave in the middle of the night. Who knows what they can take with them? And they flee to Egypt, not an easy track, uh, trek. Several hundred miles they go to Egypt. They live in Egypt uh, until Herod dies, probably not that much longer after this. Uh, and then they make their way back and they find that Archelaus, his son, has taken over that region uh, after him. And Archelaus is just as bad as his father was. And so uh, having been warned again, they now make their way up to Galilee. And this is, of course, where uh, Jesus' ministry will really uh, begin in 25, 30 years or so. This process of becoming refugees has been such a part of our discourse uh, and in our news cycles uh, day in and day out. I mean, we're very familiar with the ways in which uh, rulers, corrupt rulers, uh, use their power and their uh, capacity for violence, and they drive people out of their countries, the people who they do not want to have there, the peoples who are, uh, who are threats to them. We live in a time when there's refugees uh, coming from all countries all over the world. So the Syrian refugee crisis is still ongoing, has been ongoing for, for years. The, uh, there are refugees from South America that are a big part of our political discourse right now at our southern border, uh, trying to seek asylum. Uh, and the, how we are going to deal with that or not deal with that is part of a up for debate. Uh, but one of the things I want to do, and this is going to be a little different in the second half of the sermon, is I want to give voice... Uh, to a couple refugee stories that are modern-day refugee stories, one from uh, Liberia in Africa and one from uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, the, you know, the, the, what I'm trying to say. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I was very young when that was happening. I can say it when it's in front of me. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I want to read, the, uh, and these are stories that have come from uh, Lutheran uh, Immigration and Refugee Services, which is a nonprofit organization uh, that especially works with uh, refugees and resettling refugees in the United States in particular. And I just want to share a couple of these stories. And as you hear these stories, um, I want you to just notice the similarities uh, to our story in Matthew and what's happening here. So I'm going to uh, take, take a moment to read these. So this first story is Selena's story, uh, and she is uh, the one who was in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Am I close? Herzegovina? Herzegovina, thank you. This is what she writes. My name is Selena. My story is about home. It takes only four letters to write the word home, but it took a long time to find its meaning. As a former refugee, the word home caused pain, confusion, and uncertainty, but when I finally found its meaning, I found peace. Home for me once was Bosnia and Herzegovina. However, the bloody aggression and genocide inflicted upon Bosnia in the 90s forced me and my family to run to save our lives. America opened its doors and welcomed us to its shores. Even though it's been 20 years since Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services helped me, my family and me resettle, I still remember the days when I was a 12-year-old girl without a voice loud enough to be heard. Like many Americans recently, I have been following the refugee crisis very closely. In 2016, I watched on television the pictures of those children that were struggling on the shores in Europe. In early 2017, I've read stories of difficult journeys in both Europe and the United States. These situations are close to home for me because I was once there. Because of these recent news stories, I remember when my mom, grandma, brother, and I were watching my dad get on the bus so that he could reach Croatia first to help us escape from Bosnia. I remember all the people standing around watching loved ones leave, and I can remember their faces in the windows of the buses that were departing. My father held back tears as he departed, a broken man. 
Having an education and as a professional engineer, he had once been strong and was always very well dressed. However, now because we were in a war situation, he left, heart, he left heartbroken and in many ways felt defeated. He did not know if he would ever see us again. The news also took me back to when my mom, my brother, and I finally arrived by bus in Croatia to reunite with my dad. Before the bus even stopped, my dad saw me in the window and ran along with the bus waving at us. He was overjoyed to see us again. I remember seeing him dressed in a suit, just like the dad I remembered from my childhood, not as the father who had left us during the war. The news stories of recent also took me back to the time that I remembered how scared I was at 12 years old because I couldn't fully comprehend what was coming. Where do I go from here? Am I safe? I remember hearing cries of happiness from people, but still hearing the uncertainty and fear in those same cries. I remember many details. Oh, how I remember. After seeing these images and reflecting back on my own experience as a refugee, I wanted to know what I could do to help. I'm not normally quick to have these feelings, but seeing the images of Syrian refugees just put me right there with them. Someone helped me when I resettled, and now it is my turn to do that for someone else. I thank America every day for not turning its back on my family and me, but I am most thankful to America for letting me into its land and saving me. I am a person of action, and after watching these news reports, I asked myself, what needs to be done? How can I help? I thought I can donate. I can reach out to the government. I can raise awareness through social media. As migrants and refugees, we can support resettlement efforts to lend a hand to welcome the stranger. When my parents, older brother, and I resettled to America in 1995, we not only experienced culture shock, but we did not know many of the basic steps we needed to take to begin our new lives. Lutheran Church volunteers did all they could to help us. I have learned that it is important to be proud of where I am from and that it is important to feel American. It does not mean I am forgetting my history. It means I once again have a place to call home. Second story is uh, from a man named Joseph uh, in uh, Liberia. My name is Joseph. I'd always envisioned growing up in Liberia and contributing toward the future of my country. School, church, and sports were things I spent my early life doing. Life was fine and everything appeared peaceful. I never envisioned leaving Liberia, but rather looked forward to my future with great optimism. However, all my hopes appeared to have reached a dead end on May 17, 1990. On that day, my entire city experienced fierce gunfire, and the long-talked-about rebels arrived in Buchanan, Liberia. I was at home watching the uh, World Wrestling Federation when suddenly the lights went out and my ears were introduced to approximately 72 hours of steady gunfire. During a break from the constant sounds of shots being fired, all the members of my community assembled in an open field and asked to point out those who were affiliated with the current government. My family became a target because my mother's maiden name was the same name as the president. She was incarcerated on numerous occasions, and there were times when we thought she would be killed. It was extremely difficult as a child to see my mother being treated as a criminal, especially considering she was a person who had dedicated her entire life to helping others. On October 24, 1990, she was arrested again at approximately 6 o'clock in the evening and taken to the rebel camp on suspicion of keeping members of the government's army in our house. This was a total falsehood. When she was finally released at midnight, she made the decision for us to leave our community and country. We left in the night and headed for another country in Liberia, which shares a border with the Ivory Coast. We rode the freight train from Buchanan to Yakipa, arriving the next morning and shortly after leaving for the Ivory Coast. Life in the Ivory Coast was not what I envisioned. It was extremely difficult. I remember each day the suffering, the lack of hope, and enduring each blow delivered by the many challenges. 
At one point, I had only one shirt and one pair of pants for school and wore flip-flops since my mother could not afford to buy me a pair of shoes. I remember that at one point my mother became ill. I could not stand by while my family struggled, so I took a job working on a farm. My job was to work in the swamp, planting rice. I remember discussing this with my mother, and she asked me to stop because I was a child and should not bear this burden for my family, but I insisted that I would rather die than seeing her struggle and die before my eyes. One day after a long day of working in the swamp, barefooted, I felt my right leg itching, but thought it would go away. When I got home to take a shower, I noticed several leeches on my right shin and called for help. A man came to my aid and used a piece of metal to pull each leech off my leg, but a portion of my skin was removed with every pull. I still bear the scars on my legs, and they remind me of how far I had come as a child. After living in the Ivory Coast for several years, my three siblings and I were resettled in America with my father, who who had already been resettled. I was 21 years old at the time and remember last seeing my father briefly when I was 10. For me, being resettled in America was a blessing, but in disguise. Shortly after I resettled, I discovered that my challenges were far from over. I received very little help, and I found myself homeless and sleeping on the streets of Washington, D.C. I was lost once again. However, after some months, I had a conversation with a Lutheran pastor who ended up providing me with a great deal of support and encouragement. And with his assistance, I was eventually able to find work and eventually attended college. I now have a master's degree in criminal justice and am a theological student. I am married and have two beautiful children. Many refugees have similar experiences to me. They feel lost and out of place, both in their homeland and in their new country. However, my experience through difficult times both in Africa and America developed within me a sense of appreciation for every opportunity I was granted. The experiences were difficult but taught me to always remain positive. I believe that everyone can be successful if they are given a fair chance. The opportunity given to me by Americans to strive for a better tomorrow now feels so welcoming and hopeful. I am grateful to the United States, my new home and country. Though every day continues to present different challenges, I feel a sense of preparedness, knowing that I am alive and that there is hope. What connections did you notice between our story, our reading in Matthew 2? Desperate people, yeah. Violence drove them out, that's true. Yeah. What else? The need to flee? Yeah. Yeah. Lutheran help, yeah. I'm not sure if that happened uh, for Mary and Joseph or not. I don't know how many Lutherans are in Egypt, but yeah. Yeah. Lois. Yeah, there's welcome. Yeah, it makes me wonder, what was Mary and Joseph and Jesus' time in Egypt like? We're not told. I wonder. I wonder if there were people who welcomed them there or if they were outsiders always. I don't know. We weren't told. The one leaving by night after his uh, mother was arrested uh, struck me as, this is Mary and Joseph, now's the time. You've got to go now. Uh, and out, out they go with no hope or with no, uh, no delay, I mean, with, with only hope. That's all they had. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So the dad going ahead. So in, in Matthew's telling, Joseph is the one who's really in charge of getting his family places. You notice that too, right? He's the protector of Jesus. We talk about, uh, there's this title for Joseph uh, in the church of, of being Jesus's protector. Uh, and that really is, in this story especially, is what he's doing, right? He's taking them, he's, he's figuring out where to go, and, and they're able to stick together as a family, it seems. Um, but that's not always the case. 
I raise these stories um, just to highlight that this is a real thing that is still happening today. In fact, far more today, as far as I can tell, than it was then, maybe just because there's more people today uh, than there were then. And that Jesus himself, our very Lord and Savior, was a refugee early in his life. That he had to flee, or rather his parents had to flee with him uh, off to Egypt because of the instability or because of the targeted violence of the king there. That when they returned, they had to go up to Galilee rather than continue to make their home in Bethlehem as they had for however long since it had been since Jesus had been born. This is a real thing that still happens. And yet there are Christians, Lutheran and otherwise, all around the country who are working to help refugees. I know the current political uh, debate around refugees, it's a charged issue right now. And I'm not really making a, I'm not advocating for a particular border policy or something like that. But I do think that we have a responsibility to care for refugees, that we have a responsibility to pray for refugees, that we have the responsibility to help as we are able And that there are refugees not only in foreign countries, but also within our own countries. There are refugees from their own families. Some of you have shared stories of how you have taken in refugees who were refugees from their own households because of violence or abuse or others. This is the sort of work that God calls us to, and it's not easy work. But it's the sort of work that seems to follow God's people around, and it has from the very beginning. Above all, though, God is with us. God was with Jesus, God was with Joseph and Mary, God sent the angel to protect them, and even though Jesus would, of course, end up being killed later on, this was only a temporary 30-year reprieve, his very death overcomes death for us. So that even though we live in a world that is dominated by forces of death and violence and power, that death has been defeated. For in Jesus Christ, we are victorious, and we can engage and will engage with the powers that be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.